0: Good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, thanks for sitting through that video. Uh, it was way easier to watch a five-minute video than for me to try and explain all that because they do a much better job. So I hope, I hope you found that helpful uh, just in terms of breaking down uh, scripture and what is, uh, what is the Bible kind consist of consists uh, of. We're going to begin a two-week series this morning on God Breathe. We call it God Breathe Why? Uh, why believe the Bible? So, throughout this year, we've been focusing on uh, different values that we have at Sun West. And we just finished a brief two week series on servanthood. And now we're doing a two week series on the Bible. We have a value here called living God's Word. We believe that the Word of God uh, is authoritative in our lives. And you, if you've been around for any length of time, you know that whenever we gather on a Sunday morning, we come to this book, we come to the Bible. Um, and we believe that this Bible is uniquely inspired by God, uh, and we believe that it's, like I said, authoritative in our lives. I I remember uh, when I went to Bible school. So after high school, I went to a Bible school in Saskatchewan, and I went through um, a whole year of Bible school, and then that summer I went to camp. And when I got to camp that summer, um, I got into... The Bible really for the first time. I know you're asking, like, how did you get through a whole year of Bible school without reading your Bible? It's possible. Um, I learned some good skills in high school uh, about how to get by without actually doing the work. Um, but I went to camp that summer, and I just felt this, this conviction as I spent uh, months uh, alone on my own uh, to dive into the Word of God. And it, it kind of started as a discipline, and I, you know, it was pretty methodical, and I was like, I'm, I'm doing this because I feel like I'm supposed to, uh, you know, as a camp counselor, as a, someone who's going back for second year Bible school, maybe I should, you know, get to know actually what's in this. Uh, and so I kind of did it out of duty. Um, I'm just wondering, Roland, or sorry, Murray, if you guys can help me out here. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty. Technology is awesome uh, when it works. Um, and so every morning I would get up and, and I would spend time in the word of God out of discipline and it started working now. So I, we might be okay. Maybe just stay here on call here, Murray, for a couple of minutes. Uh, can I give a, get a hand for Murray, one of our producers here? So what started out of discipline, I, actually grew into something rather quite life transforming for me. I found that as I started to open the, the scriptures every single morning when I woke up, it's like I couldn't get enough of it. Uh, and I, I had this appetite, this hunger that that grew, that started in discipline, but actually grew to like this this longing and this thirst. And, uh, and soon I just found myself getting up earlier and earlier. And if any of you guys have been involved in camp ministry for any length of time, you know it's an exhausting ministry, right? You're, you got six and a half days where you're Around twelve crazy kids, and you're responsible for six and a half days, and then you have half a day off, and then they come the next day, and it starts all over again. You do that for an entire summer, and I found that I just I couldn't get up early enough. It was like this miraculous point in my life where God just like gave me energy, gave me hunger. And, uh, you know, I can remember starting to get up at like 4 a.m. just because I, I was like, you know, a kid would get up and go to the bathroom. Like, well, I'm awake. Why don't I just spend time with the Lord? And, and so I started encountering God in a profound way as I, uh, as I got into the Word. And that's really the summer that I felt the call and the tug of my heart to pursue pastoral ministry. Uh, and it's because I encountered God himself through his Word. And so I believe that the Bible is unique I believe that it's authoritative. I, I seek to live my life based on the Word of God. And I believe that it's different than other books, other spiritual writings. And you, I don't know your story this morning, uh, but we live in a time where people, you know, have this kind of generic spiritualism and, you know, all truth is equal in all these books have equal truth, and we have here the Book of Mormon, the Quran. Uh, we have uh, a book on Buddhism here, and do these books contain truth in them? You know, I think of the Quran here. Does this book contain truth in it? Uh, absolutely, yes, it does. You know, anytime the you know one of these spiritual writings you know speak of peace or uh, love of God, love of uh, love of humanity, care for creation, we. We, we resound with a yes to those things. We, we say, yeah, there's, there's absolutely truth. But when we think of the Book of Mormon, the Quran, the Dhammapada from Buddhism, the Bhagavad Gita from Hinduism, you know, we, we have to ask ourselves the question, are these books really all the same? And to that, I have to say that they're not. In fact, they're quite different. Is there truth in some of them? Is there truth in them? Yes. But when you actually dig down into what are are these books actually saying, what are these books teaching, uh, you'll find that they do not say the same thing. The Bible is adamant that, that there's one God and that he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Hinduism uh, says in some ways everything is God. You're God, I'm God. That chair you're sitting in is God. Uh, The tree is God. The Quran would deny that Jesus was the son of God and that he died on the cross for anyone's sins. It uh, It says in the Quran, this Messiah, Jesus' son of Mary, was no more than God's apostle. And it also talks about that those who worship Jesus as God will be condemned in the afterlife. So you can see it's, it's vastly different than what the Bible says. Buddha. Buddha, Buddha wasn't really certain about God at all. Uh, in one way, you could say he was an agnostic. So they, di- differ, they differ significantly on the fundamental, fundamental questions of life, of who we are, of who God is. And yet in the Christian faith, we believe that God is revealed uniquely, authoritatively in this book. So the question I want to explore this morning is, should we have confidence in this book? And why should we have confidence in this book? And let's start with what the Bible actually says about itself. So see on the screen here, 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So it says all scripture is what? What's the word there? Inspired by God. And you'll see on the next slide that the word here is theonoustos. Can you guys say theonoustos? Theonoustos. Theo means God. And noustos, um comes from the Greek word pneuma, which is the word for breath, life, or wind. And, and so many translations would say all scripture is God breathed. All scripture has actually been made alive by God. Thank you, Murray. This is where we get the word inspired from. It's originally a Latin word, which pretty much means in-breathed. There's breath inside of it, the God, God's very own breath inside of it. So inspired is it's not just in terms of how we use it in our culture. Like I went to um, the concert and I felt inspired. That's not what it means. It's not just this general inspiration we feel. But it's also not inspired in terms of this, this neutral idea that uh, the humans that wrote the book uh, were completely not a part of or not active in the writing, that God just kind of took over their bodies and uh, they were in this trance mode and they kind of wrote these scriptures down for us. If you read the Bible for any length of time, you realize that there's very much human personality, human perspective within the pages. So, so God breathing in, God's spirit alive and active within certain humans that he appointed in history to actually write down uh, this word. First Peter 1 Peter 1.21 says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke for God. Over 3,000 times in Scripture it says, Thus saith the Lord. So does that mean that it's true? Just because it says it? What do you guys think? Just because it says, thus says the Lord, does that mean it's true? It, it means it's true if you believe that it's true. Uh, but in and of itself, just because someone says, I'm speaking on behalf of God, doesn't necessarily make it true. So we have to acknowledge that just because of what the Bible says about itself doesn't actually mean that that's what it is. Um, but let's explore it a little bit this morning. I want to talk about six reasons why we can have confidence in the Word of God this morning. Uh, The first one is authorial confidence. Can you say it with me? Authorial confidence. So most religious books have a single author. So the Book of Mormon written by Joseph Smith. One guy wrote the book. The Quran written by Muhammad who claimed to be led by the angel Gabriel, but written by one person, Muhammad. Most religious books are like that. The Bible has 66 books. So you could say the Bible is like a library. It's not just one book. It has 66 different books written by 40 different authors, writers. It took 1,500 years in the making. Say 1,500 From 1400 BC to 180, uh, the books in your Bible were being written. It happened on three different continents, and it happened in three different languages. Now, this is significant because some people would point to, hey, well, there's some discrepancies in the Bible here or there. Uh, But did you know that all the discrepancies in Scripture are all on secondary matters, they're all on things that are not foundational or doctrinal to the Christian faith. And so if someone comes to you and says, well, I can't believe the Bible because it's, you know, it's, it's completely, there's all these discrepancies that, you know, you could ask them, it's like, which ones are you talking about? Can you, can you explain them to me? Can you tell me? Because, because the core things that we believe as followers of Jesus, there is, there is no discrepancies in the word of God. And you think about that, 66 books. 40 different authors, 1,500 years, and it is incredibly accurate and consistent in the story that it tells. From this loving God who created the world to the fallen humanity, to this plan of redemption, to this future hope of new creation, from beginning to end, we see the same story being tied together, that God and his spirit was actually bringing multiple authors over um, over time, in different places, to write this thing. You know, some of the writers were kings, slaves, fishermen, physicians. There were were all sorts of guys that were writing these books. And so it's consistent in the answers it gives to most of the core fundamental questions that we ask. Why am I here? How do I find meaning in life? What is God like? How do I make, make peace with God? Is there a way that I can get to know God? And the Bible from beginning to end tells the same story, a continuous story. You know, you can read in the book of James and James isn't going to disagree with Jeremiah and Solomon's not going to go and disagree with Paul or Peter. It's incredible. If you took 40 writers over 1500 years and you took all their spiritual writings and you crammed them together into one book, do you think that you would have a consistent story? Likely not. Right? It's miraculous what God has done through through that time, through these writers. That's authorial confidence. That's what part of what makes our scriptures unique uh, in terms of spiritual writings. Testimonial confidence. Can you say testimonial confidence? <laughs> so what testimony am I talking about? Over 3,000 times it says, thus saith the Lord, like I said, and that doesn't... Uh, That doesn't prove the point, but we have to be aware of what Scripture claims about itself. That it's adamant within the word that this is God's word, right? And so that's that's its own testimony about itself. Second one, eyewitness testimony. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, check this out. So Paul's writing says, I passed. On to you, what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen. Can you say seen? seen? He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was what? Seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles last of all as though i had not i had been born at a wrong time i also saw him so here's the amazing claim that paul is making here that this god came to earth in flesh form that he was crucified in the cross and that much we know historically and we'll get to that in a minute but that this jesus was actually resurrected in the time when Paul is writing this. He says, don't take my word for it. I'm telling you the good news of what what Jesus has done, telling the good news about his resurrection. But if you doubt me, there's actually like 500 people that have seen him, and they're still walking among you. So go free. feel free to go and ask them. Ask them what happened. Ask them what Jesus has done. And so there's this honest, transparent, eyewitness testimony that the scriptures have itself it's not this this hidden secret that you know a small group of believers had this you know as if they, they were trying to you know pull one over people's eyes, but they, they were honest and they said, if you want to know the truth, there's actually many people that you could talk to and ask. The testimony of Christ, even if you don't accept Jesus as the Son of God and I, and there's many people at different points in their journey here this morning, and if you don't Accept Jesus, you know, as God's son, as the Messiah, as Savior. Uh, Most people in our culture would accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, a great man. But Jesus himself actually believed that this was the very Word of God. Jesus himself memorized the Word of God, he knew it inside and out because he believed that God was uniquely experienced and revealed in His Word. Fourth, the testimony of the church. I know what you're thinking. Of course the church testifies that this is the word of God. And you're right. uh, But 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 it's worth mentioning that the the church for all of history has believed that God is uniquely and authoritatively revealed through his word. And we can look at the 2,000-year history of the church, and this has always been something that has guided the life and activity of the church In 2 Peter 2.15, there's a a fascinating section that says this. Peter's writing, he says, And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. And we say, duh. Uh, So some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with what? Other parts of Scripture. What's Peter saying here? He, he's recognizing that even in this time in history, while the apostles themselves were writing these letters, that the letters that the apostles were writing were in and of themselves Scripture. They were on par, and I would say were even superior in the mind of the early church to the Old Testament writings that they already held as the Word of God. And so we have the testimony of the church. A third area that we can gain confidence from is historical confidence. Say historical confidence. You may have heard something like this. The Bible can't be relied on, like I said, because it contains so many inaccuracies. As I said, they were only, these inaccuracies are only on secondary issues. So you know, sometimes in the Gospels, for example, you'll have you know, one of the gospel writers will say two people were at this event. And then the, one of the other gospel writers will say one person was at that event. They fed this many people at this miracle. Oh, no, they actually fed this many people. And so those are the type of inaccuracies we're talking about. We're not talking about core fundamental issues of Christian faith, uh, doctrine, or creeds. And some people say, well, I can't believe the Bible because Jesus isn't even referred to outside of scripture. And let me Let me just highlight a a couple of writings here. Tacitus was a senator and a historian of the Roman Empire, and he wrote in 110 A.D. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, so we're talking about Christ, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. So here, Tacitus is recognizing Jesus as a very real person and the movement that started in the early church as something that they could not contain, that even persecution itself would not stop, and even as hard as they tried to stop this movement, it actually kept going. Suetonius was a Roman historian belonging to the equestrian order who wrote during the earlier uh, imperial era of the Roman Empire, and he, and he writes this in 115 AD, Punishment by Nero was afflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. What was the superstition that he was referring to? It was the death and resurrection of, Of Jesus Christ. That was the superstition in reference here. Pliny the Younger, famous historian who wrote over 200 letters, Uh, in his tenth letter, he writes, They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as a God. Right, so this idea of Jesus being God is not, is not a development of later Christianity. It's actually right in the foundations of the early church. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. This, this stubborn belief that this Jesus they worshipped had actually been resurrected from the dead. And so when we look at history... One of the questions we need to ask is, what caused a group of disheartened, fearful, mostly poor followers of Jesus to risk their lives and become these dynamic leaders that would lead uh, this movement that would go on for the next 2,000 years that would reform society and culture? Was it merely a mass hallucination? we We know that these followers led... It led to the development of great Western university hospitals, relief agencies. What, what had happened that launched this movement? They believed very specifically that God himself had come in the form of flesh in the person of Jesus, that Jesus had died on the cross and that he had been resurrected and they had seen him with, his, with their own eyes. And because they had seen him with their own eyes, they were willing to give their very lives for what they saw and what they knew. Manuscriptural confidence, say that, manuscriptural confidence, just so you know, this isn't like a, we don't normally like get into like manuscript type of uh, talk here at SunWest, so if this is your first time, please don't be frightened away, Um, but thank you for entertaining my geekiness uh, at least for one Sunday. How do we know what we have today actually reflects what was written in the original writings? One of the main sources of this is manuscript evidence. There are virtually no ancient writings that we have that are original writings. They all come from manuscripts. Manuscript is an ancient copy of an ancient text. So you think about there's no photocopiers at the time. So how did the copies come about? You had people that actually sat down to make physical copies so that we had copies. Right, so you can imagine making a physical copy of your entire Bible and writing that out. That, w- that would be a manuscript. So the question is, how reliable are those manuscripts? Well, before we come, b- come to Scripture, uh, let me reference Herodotus' history, uh, which historians would say is a very accurate, uh, believable, trustworthy account of, uh, of Roman history. There's eight, cop- eight copies, eight manuscripts. Everybody say eight manuscripts. And the time between the oldest manuscript we have and the original writing of Herodotus is 1,300 years. Say 1,300 years. That's a long time. But there's enough confidence with historians, with these manuscripts, to say that we believe that this is actually reflective and accurate of what Herodotus wrote. Let me point out another one that you've probably heard of, Plato's Republic. Anybody read Plato's Republic in school? couple of hands in the air. Okay, did your teachers, when they taught to you, give it to you and say, now we're not sure, you know, if this is actually what Plato wrote or if it's accurate, uh, if it's reflective. Yeah, they don't, they don't really go there uh, because they believe confidently that what we have in Plato's Republic is what Plato himself wrote. Seven manuscript copies. Everybody say seven manuscript copies. <laughs> 1,200 year gap. Yeah, you can say that too. 1,200 year gap. From the oldest, Copy of the Republic that we have, of the manuscript copy that we have, to the original writing, a 1,200 year gap. Yet this is enough for literary scholars to say, we are confident that this is Plato's writing. Now let's talk about Scripture, the New Testament specifically. So I don't know where your mind goes to how many manuscripts there might be of the New Testament. You know, seven, eight, nine, ten. How about 24,000? Just think about that for a second. 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. And not one of those manuscripts, or sorry, the oldest manuscripts we have is only... 100-year gap from the oldest manuscripts we have to the original writings. So we're not talking 1,200 years, 1,300 years, 1,400 years. We're talking a 100-year gap. And so this idea that, you know, we can't have confidence that the Bible is actually the original writings is, is actually quite bogus. There, there is no other writings that we have that could stand up uh, or that, that, ha- that we could look at with the amount of confidence we have in the New Testament and know that this is a reflection of actually the original writings. We don't hold any other writings to the scrutiny that many people hold the Bible to, but the Bible s- stands up incredibly well uh, because of some of these realities. Now, admittedly, there are discre- I-, I mentioned this before, there are discrepancies in the Bible. And so you can imagine if you were sitting down writing the whole Bible from start to finish 24,000 times, that there would be a few errors, right? You'd probably miss some letters. You might write the same word multiple times. Did you know that throughout Christian history, we have been very transparent on those errors in, uh, in history? If you look in your Bibles, you will find anytime there's kind of manuscript discrepancies or this manuscript had this, this one didn't, and... Um, They're noted in your study Bible, if you have a study Bible. No one's hiding behind some of these discrepancies. There's only two discrepancies that are of any significant length. And those are in Mark chapter 16 and John chapter 8. So how many of you guys have Bibles on you right now? Okay. Uh, Someone, you know, maybe a couple of you or all of you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Some of you can open to John chapter 8. Let me open uh, my Bible to Mark chapter 16. This is kind of the section, I don't know if you, you know it, where they're, you know, it's the end of the, the gospel of Mark. If I can get there. And this is what it says in my, in my Bible. It'll, it, it says, here's the short rendering of Mark. Here's the longer ending of Mark, The most, and then it has a footnote here. It says, the most reliable early manuscripts of the gospel of Mark end at verse 8. Other manuscripts include various endings to the gospel. A few include both the shorter ending and the longer ending. The majority of manuscripts include the longer ending immediately after verse 8. So you'll find, you'll find that note in Mark 16. You'll also find it in John 8 uh, with the woman caught in adultery. The, original, the oldest original manuscripts we have don't have those two sections of Scripture, But they were in some of those 24,000 manuscripts. And so they get put in your Bible, but there's a note there that this is where um, there's some disagreement between some of the manuscripts. They're all noted for you. So we can have great confidence that what we have in our word is actually uh, the original writings of the authors themselves. Fifth point, prophetic confidence. Say prophetic confidence. So there's over 2,000 prophecies in Scripture. 200 of those prophecies refer directly to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And there are no prophetic failings in Scripture. Now granted, there are prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. There are some of them. And we think of the second coming of Christ and the prophecies around that event. Obviously, those uh, prophecies have not yet been fulfilled. But the other prophecies... There's been no prophetic failures, and uh, you know you can you can look into this on your own. I won't I won't belabor the point here, but uh, one example would be you know prophecies around the destruction of certain cities, and you'll find if you looked up these references in your Bible in Ezekiel 25, the destruction of Moab; Ezekiel 30, the fall of Egypt; Nahum 1, Nineveh; Isaiah 13, Babylon; Hosea 13, Samaria. Throughout Scripture, you will, you will see prophecies about the fall or destruction of certain cities are often hundreds of years before the events happened. And there's thousands of those. And so we can look at Scripture and say we have a prophetic confidence. We look at the prophecies in Scripture and see God's divine hand in it because it's proven to be true. And you would think that of any divine book that we claim this is God's word to us, that if there's prophetic Uh, if if there's prophecies in it, that those prophecies would ring true. And you might say, well, that's the same as the other spiritual writings, and and I would like to say that it's not. And please feel free to look into that. But our scriptures are actually very unique in terms of the the prophecies in it and the amount of prophecies, um, successful prophecies within scripture itself we're almost there. Last point of confidence, experiential confidence. Can you say that? Are you guys sticking with me okay here? All right. I must confess that when I decided to really take the Bible as authoritative, I didn't think one iota about manuscripts, about historical confidence, um, you know, about prophecies or any of that stuff, uh, my personal uh, conviction came from my own experience with scripture. And so why I want to conclude on this point is I would say, try it out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. You know, if you're someone who's searching and journeying and you don't know what you believe about Jesus or about God or about the Bible, uh, I would simply ask you to, To come to the Bible with an open heart and an open mind and try and live in obedience to what the word tells you. I believe with all my heart that as we live in obedience to the Bible, we actually, uh, something comes alive in us. That you will will actually start to experience a hunger and a thirst in your own life that you can't get enough of the word of God. C.S. Lewis said this, He said, people do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They reject the Bible because it contradicts them. And when you read the Bible for what it is, you will find yourself being challenged by it. And it's not always easy to read. Uh, But that's because God is God and we are not. And, And if we're actually encountering a true and living God, we should expect that that God is actually going to challenge us. And so I find that it has has transformed my own life. And in Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. God's word is alive and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Would you try it out? I don't know what your your experience is with the word, what your daily, weekly, monthly, yearly practice is with the word, uh, but have you been in it lately? Has it become part of your regular life that you are actually feeding on the word of God? And if you're struggling with confidence in the word of God, um, I would ask some questions around how much you are uh, reading it or heeding to it. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." I was um, I was on a bike ride last week, and I've been uh, I've been on a pretty training pretty hard for some things coming up, and uh, and so I've been pushing my body to see what what its limits are, and uh, so I've been doing a lot harder rides, longer rides, and and trying to. Uh, eat less and drink less when I ride, just to try and you know test my limits. Um, and so I went for a big ride uh, just over a week ago, and you know I was on my bike for I think it was, it was four and a half hours, and multiple big climbs, and it was a hot day out, and it was a good ride. And I passed I passed some hikers, really nice hikers, on my ride. And uh, and then a couple hours later, I was climbing up to the same spot that I'd been. And when I was climbing, I, my muscles started cramping up. I was like, oh, that's not a good sign. Um, and I didn't have food on me. I didn't have any water left on me. Uh, and then I started getting lightheaded. And uh, and my legs, like, stopped even working, right? And I, I felt like I couldn't see straight. Um, and uh, And I had to... I was trying to push my bike up the, the, the last climb, and I couldn't even walk it, actually. My legs just started giving out, and I had to lie down on the side of the trail. And uh, I was there for a long time, and my wife's probably at home, like, wondering, well, where, where, where is he? Did he get eaten by a grizzly? Or, um, but I was just there by myself, no cell phone service, and I'm just, I'm just praying on the side of the trail, like, God, bring somebody. Bring somebody my way, and Nothing. Well, sorry. No, I waited on side travel for a long time. And then I prayed. And actually, immediately when I prayed, I started hearing voices. That's what happened. So (laughs) don't want to discredit God to do something cool. Uh, So I was there for like 20, 30 minutes. I'm like, Jesus, I need somebody to come and feed me. I need somebody to come and feed me. And then all of a sudden, those hikers that I'd passed a couple hours earlier, um, you know, these hippie hikers, they're they're hiking in bare feet. The guy's got no shirt on. uh, They're super happy. And... (laughs) They asked me if I uh, wanted to smoke some stuff with them and I I said I'm quite alright I was like but if and they looked at me like dude you don't look very good and I'm like yeah I just I'm struggling and they're like well do you want some food and so uh so this guy he has like this big container and it's like it's like this mix of like chia seeds and oatmeal and raspberries and grapes and like all the stuff just kind of piled in together and he takes out his own silver-used spoon. And he's like, dude, here, have have some food. And I could care less for that spoon of it. I just, like, I start shoveling it in. And uh, this this lady that was there uh, gave me some nut butter. And so I, as I take the spoon, I'm, like, shoveling in nut butter. And uh, and he's like, you want some water? He had this big thing of water. I downed, like, the whole thing that he had. And, uh... And it was like I could, I could actually feel like the life returning to me. You know, so I sat there eating for 10 minutes, had a great conversation with them. And, you know, they just came from like this new age retreat. And they, you know, actually when I first encountered them, I was like, I was like, do you guys have, uh, you guys got some food? And they said, I was like, yeah, we love, we love all created beings. We would love, you know, <laughs> they were totally big. Um, <laughs> but they were, uh. They were a godsend. (laughs) And, uh, And I just felt like the life returning to me. And Scripture over and over again refers to this in metaphors very much similar to food, water, bread, nourishment. And maybe you feel like you are to take that metaphor you are you are struggling. you can't move forward you're you're stuck, and I would just say, "Come and eat like God's given us his word, and I find when you come to his word that'll quench your thirst it's the very bread of life, and if it's not part of your routine in your life, I would encourage you to make it a regular part of your routine in your life because the more, you, the more you engage with it, actually the more hungry you become for it. And you'll find that the God-breathed theonoustos scripture actually becomes the source of God-breathing life into your very being. So let me pray for you. And then I have one more announcement. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it is God-breathed, Lord, that we, when we encounter it, we actually encounter a living God. We thank you that it's sharp, like a two-edged sword, that it has the ability to cut through to our heart, to encourage us, to challenge us, to rebuke us, to call out of us who you created us to be. Lord, I pray that we would be a community of people, Lord, that lives your word, that longs for your word, that is hungry for your word, that we would be marked by your word. Lord, that we would live in obedience to your word, even when we don't understand it, even when it disagrees with us, Lord, that we would agree with your word, that we would live in, in, in agreement with your word. Lord, I pray we wouldn't buy into the lie that says, well, unless I feel like it, I'm not going to listen to it, Lord. Obedience to you comes before our own feelings. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just raise the level of obedience, the level of discipline, Lord, that we would be a community that chooses obedience even when we feel like being disobedient. And, Lord, we thank you that they're the very words of life. Um, So would you breathe life into us? In Jesus' name, amen. So before my announcement, if the Bible is authoritative and inspired... Why are there so many different opinions on what the Bible says? How can the Bible be so be, uh, be a source that supported things in history like the Crusades, the Holocaust, number of genocides, the American political agenda? You know, what do we do with the parts in the Bible that are extremely uh, violent and seem very unlike Jesus? Come back next week. That's what we're going to talk about. OK.